Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Shelby Harris specializes in the use of cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, for anxiety and depression. She is board certified in behavioral sleep medicine by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine and treats a wide variety of sleep disorders, everything from insomnia, nightmares, circadian rhythm disorders, narcolepsy, apnea treatment, non-compliance, all using evidence-based non-pharmacological treatments. Before going into private practice, Dr. Harris was the longstanding director of the Behavioral Sleep Medicine Program at the Sleep-Wake Disorder Center at Montefiore Medical Center. So suffice to say, we're going to chat about all things sleep today. Shelby, welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm glad to be here. It is great to have you because sleep is top of mind for everyone, including myself after having my toddler wake me up four times last night, but all good. My sleep score wasn't that bad, which we'll get into later, but you have an interesting specialty within sleep. You specialize in behavioral sleep medicine. So can you elaborate a little bit and fill us in about what you do and what that looks like? So I think, so a lot of the space now is a lot of people talking about how to optimize sleep in general. So if you're a healthy sleeper, how can you get the best, like you're talking about the sleep score, how can you get the best sleep that you can in general? But the area of behavioral sleep medicine has been part of sleep medicine for a long time in that we treat sleep disorders. So we treat insomnia, people who use PAPs for say sleep apnea, the machines to help them breathe a little bit better in their sleep nightmare treatments, even with kids who have awakenings multiple times a night. It's all different types of treatments, behavioral, also cognitive, so thought-related, that help to improve people's sleep disorders or improve their sleep without the use of medication. So I was housed at Montefiore Medical Center in the city for, I worked there for 10, almost 15 years running the behavioral program because what we tried to do was to treat people's sleep issues without the use of medication first, because it really is in some instances like insomnia, it's the gold standard treatment. So we'd rather start with that than go down a medication route if we don't have to. You mentioned healthy sleep, and and then you Mm -hmm. also detailed some of the disorders you help people with. How do you think about, you know, I'm wearing my aura ring. There are a lot of people who have lots of trackers. How do you think about healthy sleep and defining it as well as defining when sleep become, you know, if I think about there's a spectrum, there's quote unquote healthy sleep, then there's, you know, maybe unbalanced sleep and then there's full on disorder. Am I thinking about it in the right way? Yeah, I think so. I think when we, I think people ask me a lot of times, what, what does healthy sleep mean? And I think we get very focused on data and I think there's a place for it. And we can definitely talk about that if you want. But in my mind, it's, how do you sleep at night and you're not frustrated and you feel like you're sleeping mostly through the night, maybe having a quick awakening or two, and you feel well rested and refreshed to go about your day. You might have a dip here and there, which is totally normal. But if you feel like you have energy for your day, remember sleep is at night is to restore you for the day. So if you feel okay, then it's, it's probably healthy sleep, right? If you're feeling like you're draining, if you're dragging, if you're having any like dry mouth, anything like that snoring, that's when we start to evaluate a little bit more. And so don't think too much about that sleep score that maybe isn't so great. I don't have a problem with it. I think it's an interesting mix. So a lot of like the sleep score stuff, any of the the trackers that have become really popular, I think they're fantastic for people who are 
who don't have significant sleep issues like insomnia, and they want to try and just say, you know what, is that coffee that I'm having routinely or that alcohol or the time I go to bed, is that actually making me not get the best quality sleep I can? Or are you just not getting enough sleep and kind of burning the candle at both ends? And maybe the, the rings will tell you, you should go to bed a little earlier. You should stay, you know, sleep a little later. But for people, there's been research done on this called orthosomnia, where people who have insomnia, when they have a lot of the trackers, sometimes it makes them too focused on it. And they lose track of like believing what their own sleep is like. And then they're just trying to tra treat deep sleep, restless sleep, all this sort of stuff. And it's like, it's too much focus. The, the issue in insomnia is that you're so focused on your sleep that you can't sleep. So we actually, I actually tell people, get rid of all that stuff. So if you're a healthy sleeper and you just want to optimize it, I think these devices are fantastic. But if you have a sleep disorder, it's just going to heighten the concern about it and it just makes it worse. Right? It's orthorexia. It's yes. the level of it. A hundred percent. And so with regards to, to insomnia, th th there just to be clear, there yeah. is a clear definition. Like it, it's not like I'm listening and I'm saying, maybe I'm an insomniac, maybe I'm not. Like, can yeah. you talk about how do you define insomnia? Yeah. So insomnia, it's really mostly a d disorder of kind of perception in a weird way. So it's trouble falling asleep, trouble staying asleep, and or trouble awakening too early. And some of the classifications will say around 30 minutes. So the trouble meaning more than 30 minutes. But it's such hard. It's like it's just it has to create a frustration for you. I don't want people being like, it was 31 minutes I met insomnia criteria because that's not usually how it falls. But it's that trouble falling, staying, or awakening too early, but it also has to create an issue for you. That's the key, in my opinion, in the definition. So if you're having frustration because you're not sleeping, if you are laying awake and your brain is active or you're tired during the day, you're just annoyed by it. That meets the criteria for insomnia. And the other thing to keep in mind is that it has to happen at least three, three times a week for multiple weeks on end. Even one month is just considered short term more than three months starts to be chronic. So I think in our society, we have this idea that you should have perfect sleep every single night. And that's lovely. I would love that. But the reality is that there's individual variation from night to night. And to have a bad night here and there means that you're human and that there's children that might wake you up or there's other things, hormones. It could be a million things, just heat, stress, that to have a bad night here and there is not doesn't mean you have insomnia, but multiple times a week for multiple weeks then fits that criteria. So you mentioned getting asleep, staying asleep, and awakening. Yeah. H how do you think about those three core areas and the issues we face with each area? If you could take each one, well, maybe let's start with mm -hmm. you know, getting to sleep. How do you think about the problems and opportunities? And then let's go from getting asleep, staying asleep to awakening for each individual. You know, sometimes I actually don't really think of them so differently. Sometimes I think of the early morning awakenings a little differently, but trouble falling asleep for a lot of people it, and awakening in the middle of the night, it can also be stress related, right? I think for a lot of people in our world, we are, especially since the pandemic, I find that it's worsening because we have our work at our fingertips 24 seven now. And there's really not for a lot of people, not a demarcation between work and home. So we're working, 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 and then we don't really have a dimmer switch in our brain to turn it down, we just kind of go to bed and we just think, turn the lights out, I'm gonna go to sleep. And for those people, I think we need to decompress. It's really important. You have to set the stage, get the routine in place so that your brain how, now knows, okay, the screens are down. I'm starting to unwind to almost do a brain dump to get everything out of your brain. 
to set the stage for sleep. And I think that's often the biggest issue. And then some people actually, it's weird, but I actually have them go, if you have trouble falling asleep or in the middle of the night, even early make early morning awakenings, I have them go to bed later. So it kind of, it's counterintuitive, but we always say, get more sleep, get more sleep. But if you can't fall asleep, I'd rather you go to bed when you're really sleepy. And we time going to bed with feeling really sleepy so that you feel more confident so you're able to fall asleep. Well, it makes sense. If you're having trouble winding down and you're anxious about it, if you go to bed too early and you're not falling asleep, mm -hmm. anxiety comes on yep. in a more pronounced way. And then you have even more trouble falling asleep. Exactly. And it's funny, some people will argue with me and say, but I, I can't go to bed later. I say, why? And I said, because I, how am I going to stay up until that time? And I said, well, then you're cured. You're cured. It's not a problem anymore. So it's, there are a lot of like insomnia treatments are kind of, they go against common sense a lot of the time, I say. You know, like go to bed a little later, wake up at the same time, don't sleep in. And that's how I, especially with the people of the beginning of the night issue, when I'm telling them to stay up a lot later, it goes against their common sense of what they want to do. And what are some of those other interesting, not roles, but best practices you have for those who just really struggle with, with getting asleep. Like you mentioned sleep etiquette, you know, my wife, Colleen has struggled with her sleep mm -hmm. and what, what she lives by now is her routine and her routine starts when she wakes up, you know, yep. it, 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 you can't start your sleep routine at 9 PM or 10 yep. PM. It starts at 9 AM. It starts with how much caffeine you drink when yep. you drink it exercise, food, there are a lot of things. But I'm curious, how do you think about routine winding down so that by the time it's go time, when I'm ready to go to sleep, you are set up for success. You've done all the work. I like what you said about the morning. I say that all the time. First of all, I say that the nighttime starts with the morning. So that's where it starts. But if you're really thinking about that wind down at night, routine is what we respond to. So I really, it's funny, people say to me, what's the ideal routine? And I, I really don't have one because it's got to be something that you're not going to resent and feel frustrated by. So for most people, I usually, I encourage the ideal is an hour, but I think in our time, a lot of people can't find an hour. So if you can't find an hour, start with 10 minutes. That's better than nothing. So for me, a, an ideal wind down would be take Taking a shower an hour or two before bed if you need to shower at night. Don't do it right before bed because you're actually raising your body temperature. We have people do it about an hour or two before bed. But then it's finding things that work for you. So trying to put the screens away, doing some deep relaxation, doing some meditation, doing some stretching. I have a lot of patients that read, but I like people to try and just get away from the screens. There's a lot of debate in the field as to whether the blue light is as bad as it really we think it is. I would argue it's not great, but I also would argue that what we're reading and what we get then tempted to look at with social media and all that stuff isn't great either. So if you have a routine that's the same thing night after night, so I'm going to read, I'm going to do my stretching, I'm going to do my deep breathing, I'm going to get in bed, your body knows with each stage or behavior, we, we're animals that respond to behavior changes. It knows with each stage that bedtime's getting closer. So if you can keep that routine, that would be great. But the thing that I caution people against is... If you go somewhere, if you travel, if you have to stay out late at night and you can't keep that routine, to be able to feel okay with it, that you can't keep it perfectly every night. Because some people get almost too rigid with it, that it becomes problematic and they get worried and they get almost obsessive about it, that it impacts their ability to sleep because they didn't get to do the things that they needed to do to wind down. But more days than not is ideal. So that's getting to sleep. What about staying asleep? What are some of the, the problems we encounter that hurt our ability to stay asleep 
what causes those 2 a.m., 3 a.m. wake-ups? There, it could be a myriad of issues. So it, for some people, it literally is that they, like some patients will come to me and say, I wake up at 1 a.m. every night without fail. And they look at the clock. It's because they've usually, after every sleep cycle, we have a quick awakening. That's totally normal. Full sleep cycle, you awaken, you go back to sleep. Some people wake up, but they, have an, they don't have that amnesia for it. And then they look at a clock. And when they look at the clock, they've now trained themselves to do it. It's usually because they've completed one, two sleep cycles. So it could just be habit. That's what's happened. For other people, it could be things like anxiety. For a lot of women, it can be hormonal hot flashes. It can be night sweats, things like that, that can awaken them. I see a lot of people who wake up because of pain issues, because of a snoring significant other. And then I mean, it could also just be sometimes that you're in bed too many hours, which is kind of the opposite. So if you're ha you have insomnia, you're not sleeping enough, but you keep hearing I have to spend eight hours in bed because that's what they say. I need to get eight hours. Sometimes the opportunity of eight hours when your body's only going to give you six and a half is actually too big of a window. So you're going to get it in chunks. So we actually restrict people a little bit. So the quality of it gets better. I always argue it's quality over quantity. So that's where that later bedtime and consistent wake time come into play. So what happens when we do wake up? In the middle of the night like what should we do what should we not do if we want to get back to sleep the, the the number one thing that everyone tends to do is they it's like you know if they look at the clock then they take their phone and they just lay there on their phone and just kind of scroll through social media or whatever just trying to fall asleep or the other thing that a lot of people will do is they'll lie there and they'll just stay as still as possible trying to get themselves back to sleep so, and then there are other people, you know, some people will take medication in the middle of the night. There's a lot of different options. Some people have alcohol, whatever they can do to go back to sleep. What I try to get people to do is we call it stimulus control. So it's so frustrating and hard to do, but it really does pay off if you do it in the long run. Is when you wake up, try not to look at the clock. I really argue that the clock is just going to make it worse for many people. So when you wake up, just if you haven't fallen back asleep in about 20 or 30 minutes, just kind of guesstimate. Don't get too obsessive about it. But if you start getting frustrated or your brain's getting active and you know you're not falling back asleep, get up, go sit somewhere else. Go do something quiet, calm, and relaxing without screens and do it in dim light. So don't sit in the dark then, like staring, hoping that you'll fall asleep because that's only going to make it worse. So it's just really meant to pass the time. And the whole idea behind that is that the more time you spend in the middle of the night or even at the beginning of the night or early morning, laying there in bed, tossing and turning, trying to force sleep, the more the bed becomes about that than actually sleep. And this is, this is what we hear all the time. A lot of people talk about getting out of bed if you can't sleep. But the misnomer with it that a lot of people will say is, well, when I get out of bed, I read and it didn't make me sleepy, so it doesn't work. But that's not the point of that rule. The point of the rule is to get out of bed so that you're not teaching yourself that the bed is a place to toss and turn. Sleep will come when it comes. So to go on the couch and read is great, but don't try to force the sleepiness to happen. It will happen when it happens. You're just using it as a placeholder. And then get back in bed only when you're sleepy again. And that's it. And you might have to be in and out a little bit. But that treatment technique has been around since the early 70s and has so much data behind it. It's just really hard for a lot of people to be consistent with. Got it. And what about waking up? Waking up early in the morning is similar. So I, I am a fan of, we, we were talking about consistency. So if you can set, it's hard, especially when we're talking about like little ones, if you have kids that get up at different times, but it's ideal if you can set a timer so you have an alarm that goes off. And if your alarm hasn't gone off yet, it's still considered middle of the night. So I get up, go sit somewhere else, do the same sort of thing. Go wait until you're quiet again, get or sleepy again, then get back in bed. 
And that's another thing where I would say to people, you know, try not to start your day. So if you wake up two hours earlier than you normally want to, a lot of people will just say, oh, you know, whatever, forget it. I've already just, I've slept. I can't sleep anymore. I'm going to go have my coffee. I'm going to go on the computer and start working or whatever. That just trains you with the light exposure, the food exposure, getting up to actually have an earlier bedtime. So just treat it like it's the middle of the night until that alarm gets off, goes off, and then go back into bed. And if you wake up and you hear the alarm in the other room, you're done. Don't go to sleep until the next night. And ideally, we should try to wake up the same time every day, no matter what. The, the nighttime starts with the morning. So if you get up at around the same time every day using an alarm, it helps to f make you essentially hungry enough that when bedtime comes, you've stayed, you've got enough hunger for sleep so that you fall asleep faster and stay asleep more. The biggest problem that people with insomnia get stuck with a lot of times if they have the ability to do it is they kind of start to like compensate for sleep. So they'll sleep in a little bit in the morning, a little later, or go to bed a little earlier. If you really get strict with that wake time and you get light exposure right at that set wake time, it really does help with falling asleep at night. You know, we've talked a little bit about lifestyle. You know, you, you mm -hmm. mentioned supplements and, and, and medication and they can go a long way and they work for a lot of people. Yeah. But what you specialize in is, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy. So yeah. can you dive a little bit deeper and talk about what that looks like and who can really benefit mm -hmm. from that type of work to help get their sleep to where it needs to be? That's a great question. So CBT for insomnia, a lot of people will think it's just sleep hygiene and that's couldn't be further from the truth. So sleep hygiene is a piece of it. And I always say it's kind of like the building, the basis, the foundation. And one of my colleagues, Rachel Mamber, always talks about sleep hygiene almost like it's dental hygiene. So you brush your teeth every day, you floss to help prevent cavities. If you're drinking a two liter bottle of, of caffeinated soda at night, good luck trying to fall asleep. You're making all these problems worse. So that's the stuff that we always try to just make sure people are good and consistent with. So we think about sleep hygiene, we think about alcohol use, limiting that without limiting it within three hours of bed, limiting the caffeine, light exposure. We think about screen use, wind down time, all that's great. But that usually for someone who has a chronic sleep insomnia problem, it doesn't do enough. So where the CBT for insomnia comes in is we do sleep hygiene just to get that out, out at the beginning, but then we add behavioral stuff. So the behavioral part, the B in CBT for insomnia is sleep restriction. So when I was talking about going to bed a little later or waking up at a consistent time, I have someone track their sleep. You can do it on apps. I actually am pretty old school and have them do it on just a piece of paper. And I look and guess at their guesstimates of how much sleep they're getting. And I actually restrict them. I spend, have them spend less time in bed. I have them go to bed a little later or wake up a little earlier. And that helps them to fall asleep faster and stay asleep. And then we teach them a calculation to slowly, it's almost like you have to meet your body where it is and slowly trick it into giving you more sleep. So we work on quality first and then quantity. And then we do the getting out of bed part. So if you can't, stimulus control, if you can't sleep, get out of bed. And we troubleshoot a lot of that because some people live in studio apartments or they're traveling a lot and it's hard to get out of bed in the middle of the night. And that's the B stuff. And then also relaxation exercises for some people will build in meditation. I'm a huge fan of, we'll do some of that. And then we also do the cognitive stuff. For some people, we don't even need to do it in CBT for insomnia, but for others who tend to worry a lot about consequences of sleep, if I don't sleep tonight, I won't be able to function tomorrow. I won't be able to do X, Y, Z. And they put a lot of pressure on themselves to sleep. That's where we teach them ways to challenge those thoughts, to evaluate whether they're accurate or not, because at two in the morning, that cognitive, that that rational part of your brain is not there. So I teach them ways to challenge that. 
And the way that CBT, it's like a, it's like a bunch of different modules packaged together. And it's been researched. We've had it for many years now, since the 80s, I would say, as a treatment package. And it's been so well researched that it's the gold standard treatment for insomnia ahead of medications. So the Primary Care Society, the ACP, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, we all recommend that CBT for insomnia be tried first ahead of medications for majority of people. Now, how does it work? You see someone such as myself, and I don't see people weekly. I usually see people every other week. Sometimes the sessions can, I've had patients in two sessions improve. Sometimes it can be, usually the average is about four to 12 sessions, depending upon the severity. Sometimes it's longer if you're on medications and we're working with the prescriber to taper you off the medications. But it's a very short-term treatment. It's not like a typical psychotherapy that people think they're going to. And if you can't see a provider like myself, there's also books. I wrote a book that's on CBT for insomnia for women. There's also apps. There's CBTI Coach. There's Sleepio. There's excellent, excellent resources out there for lots of different people if you can't get to a provider. So you just mentioned you wrote a book, CBT, yeah. for, to, to help women. So mm -hmm. how are women and men different when it comes to sleep and, and our issues? Yeah. So women tend to have higher rates of insomnia than men at a rate of three to two. A lot of it, we think, you know, there's different reasons for it, but a huge reason is hormonal. So even throughout what we find is with women and men, when they're before adolescence, girls and boys, we find that the sleep problem rates of insomnia is actually equal. And then once they hit adolescence, the girls start to skyrocket it, mostly because of every month around menstruation, some women start to have trouble with sleep the five days before menstruating. Then think about it, pregnancy after the baby's born, and then there's the perimenopause issues. So we see a lot more of that. And that's why I decided to my, write my book, because up until a few years ago, perimenopause, menopause wasn't like so well discussed. And now people are really talking about it, which I'm happy about. So you mentioned travel. I think a lot yep. more people are traveling. You talked about the power of routine. Yeah. H how do we travel and not let our sleep go to crap? I think there's, it depends. Travel is a tricky one because like some people worry about traveling to say an hour different time zone. That can be a little bit, but there are people who are going, you know, much further. I think you have to be kind to yourself is the first, first thing to think about. Some people can adjust really fast. Other people, we can't even diagnose a jet lag disorder until it's been two weeks. That's how long it can take some people's bodies to adjust. It's kind of crazy. So I always say rule of thumb for most people to expect is number of time zones crossed is number of days it takes the average person to adjust. So six time zones crossed, six days it'll take you to adjust, which is kind of a bummer. But if you are going to go somewhere for, say, three or fewer days, if you're going, say, from New York to California, you're only going for three days, try to stay at least as close as you can, if possible, to the New York time zone because you're not going to adjust as fast to California. If you're going for longer, anything more than three days, you're going to start adjusting to that time zone. So that's when you want to be on that time zone. Then there are ways that we will use, we use melatonin for certain people, depending on how far they're going. And we'll have people start taking melatonin in advance. We'll have them sometimes take it upon arrival when they get to the place that they're going. Napping strategies, light strategies will teach people. It really depends upon the direction you're going and the amount of time. But say if you're going from New York to say Paris, a lot of people will take an overnight flight and they'll get there in the morning. And the first thing they'll do at six in the morning is they'll get lots of bright light. And so I'll say, you know, what does your brain think it is? Your brain thinks it's two in the morning still or three in the morning. So we'll actually use 
darkness at the beginning, sunglasses for a few hours until your brain starts to think the sun starts to come out and then we'll have them take the sunglasses off. So we change up a little bit of light, light exposure depending upon the way you're going as well. So you can easily adjust. So I have a very specific question, although we have no plans to, to Europe, no, no planned mm -hmm. trips to Europe in quite some time with our two little ones, but I'm six foot seven. So like oh. I, I, me and me and an airplane is just like not fun. Even if it's business, yeah. if I upgrade, like I just don't fit. And I also, I have really no problem. Uh, I'm lucky. I don't really have a problem sleeping except when I'm really stressed. I'm pretty good, but I just can't sleep on flights. And so something. I've struggled with is when we've flown to Europe, like if we do the overnight flight, yeah. I, I just can't sleep. Yeah. And so I wake up and I'm like a zombie or I don't wake up. I land, I'm a zombie. I'm like, what, you know, I'm running yeah. on, like I, I'm, I'm becoming a little bit delirious. And so I just gave up and, and I tried to find a morning flight. Although again, the last time I flew to Europe was like five years ago. And I don't think this is a lot of a big problem. A lot of people have right now, yeah. but I am curious. For, for that specific situation, I haven't, I'm like, what, what do I ever, if I ever get on an overnight flight again or a red eye, cause I think people take red yeah. eyes. Like, like, are you just screwed if you're taking a red eye? It's not easy. I literally, I have to, I'm going out to San Francisco in a few weeks actually. And I had to schedule a red eye back. That's a five and a half hour flight. And I was oh my God, I'm not gonna sleep. It's a little bit of, you just have to accept it, right? It's hard to force yourself to fall asleep and then stay asleep on a flight. But it's just, it is what it is. If it's a longer flight than say five and a half hours, what I usually encourage people to do is try to bring, I mean, it's the simple things, but it really doesn't always work, right? Like a blanket that you're comfortable with, a, your own eye mask, a neck pillow, earplugs, whatever you can, avoid alcohol, avoid caffeine on the flight, try to get your meals more in line with where you're going. And if you have to take an overnight flight, worse comes to worse, especially if you're going east or sorry, west to east, say going to London or Paris from New York, then a nap in the morning will do you good. So, and make sure to try not to schedule your trip. So the first day you're there, you're not going, 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 take it a little easy with a nap in the morning and then ease in. But, but suffice to say a red eye with a red eye, we're, we're just a little bit screwed. <laughs> with regards, just a little bit, bit just a it's little bit. It's funny. We always think that there are ways that we can like, just make it all better. The reality is that we were not built to travel the globe in just a matter of hours. We were meant to go in like very slowly across the country and adjust as this, the time change. This is just, our bodies are not caught up to it. So there are little things you could do, but there's no one cure that's going to make it just easy. I, I, I hear you. Uh, nice problem to have. Yeah, that's true. So in terms of lifestyle, can we talk about exercise mm -hmm. and are there certain types of exercise that are better than others with regards to sleep? Are there times of day that are better? How, how do you think about exercise? The way I like to think about exercise, I think any exercise is great for sleep. And this is something I actually saw a lot at the beginning of COVID. So when people, even people who exercise routinely and they started having more stress and more sleep issues, I think of like sleep at night as a battery that's recharging. So if you're not just moving during the day, we're all shut in at home for a while. You're not recharging the battery. So any movement is good. Now, if we're thinking about exercise and specifically exercise that raises your body temperature, heart, so cardio, about 20 minutes, four to six hours before bed has been shown to help with people who have trouble falling asleep and staying asleep. So like I said, any time of day is fine for heart health, for, for your body, great. But if you want to help your ability to fall asleep and stay asleep, 
four to six hours before bed is great because what it's doing is it's warming your internal body temperature up, which is what you want to have happen. And then a few hours later, you start cooling down. And that cooling down process about one to two hours before sleep is what helps your brain release melatonin. It helps induce sleepiness. So if you exercise within three hours of bed, you're actually warming yourself up and making yourself too warm to fall asleep. You might feel relaxed mentally, physically, but your internal body temperature is too high that it actually makes it hard to sleep. So if you can time it four to six hours before bedtime, that's perfect. The reality is for many people that is very hard to do. I can't do that. It's like impossible with two little kids at home. There's no way I'm working out at four to six hours. So I work out in the morning every day and it's fine. It helps to get my stress levels down. It's great, but I don't expect it to help or hurt my sleep so much. And what about hydration? Hydration's huge. So a lot of people, the thing that I see a lot with insomnia patients is that they wake up to urinate a lot at night. And one of the things I'll say is, well, what about your liquid intake? So for them, they're drinking a lot of liquid at night, but it's also because for some of these people, they're not drinking enough during the day. So it's almost like come nighttime, they're super thirsty. So they're drinking a lot. So I encourage people to really try and hydrate throughout the day so that you're not backlogging it at night. And then the other thing to consider too is that sleep deprivation is very um, dehydrating. So I encourage everyone in the morning, if you've had a rough night of sleep, start your day, big glass of water. I always have water with a lemon slice in it. I have a big jug in my fridge. It's great. Yeah, I've, I try to front load all of my water intake. So I, I yeah. run to the bathroom quite a bit in the morning and early afternoon, because if I go later in the evening, I just find myself in the bathroom all night. And specifically, exactly. you know, you talk about women and men different, men over 50 with prostate. Like yeah. it, it, I have a rule. I don't drink. I'm not over 50, 47, but like, I don't try, I try to limit water intake after 7 PM. Yeah. Otherwise forget about you know. it. Yeah. Yeah. So liquids are, are something a lot of people don't think about. And then there are a lot of people will say like, well, I have medication I have to take at night. That's fine. But try to limit it to max eight ounces, max. So what you can find, and if you find that you're drinking enough during the day, you're super thirsty at night still, then you want to talk to your doctor because there might be issues going on that might be causing that thirst. And so no matter what we do, bad sleep just happens sometimes. And mm -hmm. when it happens, when we have that day that, you know, we're not feeling so great, we, we had made a bad night's sleep, we know it, whether the tracker says it or not, we just know it. Mm -hmm. How do we make sure that day and that evening that we set ourselves back up to get back on the sleep track. And so we don't, cause very easily what happens, yeah. I've seen this, I'm sure you see it a lot. You have a bad night of sleep and then there's, and then you start having a lot of coffee or you start doing other things that maybe that, that have a cascading effect and then it becomes two nights and so on. And then we're screwed. Yeah. So what do we do? We have a bad night. It happened to, to stop it right there dead in its tracks. That's the bad night. Then time to move on. It's interesting. One night is definitely something where you can move on fine. We have a mantra that one of my colleagues, Michael Perlis, used to say all the time, which I tell my patients every day. If I don't sleep well tonight, I'll sleep well tomorrow. And if not tomorrow, definitely the third. Usually by, and we've seen this on sleep study data all the time, usually by the third night, most people start to catch up. So give yourself at least two nights, hopefully the third, but usually by the third night, that's when people start resorting to alcohol, medications, all that stuff. They don't see that they actually will start catching up. So the way to really do it is to make sure by the third night you catch up is that you keep that wake time the same. Don't compensate for a bad night's sleep. If you try to sleep in, it's just going to make you not 
be hungry enough essentially for sleep the next night. So I want people to really try not to sleep in. If you must, must, 20 minute nap is better, but to do it before about 2 p.m. if you say go to bed 10, 11, 12 at night. So a short nap I'd rather than sleeping in another hour in the morning. The other thing is to, to try and compensate or to not compensate, but to also try to make sure you're not laying in bed, tossing and turning, do all that sort of stuff. And then like you would hit, you know, hydrate really well. Make sure you're hydrating because that will help with some of the exhaustion. Limit the, I mean, have caffeine. Use caffeine as your friend, but really try to be aware of how much you're having and try to limit it after one or two in the afternoon, maybe two cups, three max. Some people, I think three is a little too much, but it depends what your baseline is. And really try to just as much as you can, just take it easy, but try to exercise. If you can't exercise, get light exposure, go sit outside, go for a walk. Those are all the things that you can do to really help set you up for the next night or the night after. So I'll, I'll segue to melatonin. You mentioned yeah. melatonin in the context of travel and I'll share an anecdote mm -hmm. I had with another doctor we had on the show a while ago. And, you know, let, let's say you had a, a bad night and then you drink more coffee than you should have. And then you have trouble going to sleep. And so you load up on melatonin mm -hmm. and then you have trouble getting out of bed the next day. You let up on more coffee and then you let up, you eventually start loading up on more melatonin because you can also build a tolerance of melatonin. Yeah. And then you have this problem where I'm curious your take melatonin at the dosages we're seeing in, in the market, you know, five milligram, 10 milligram are not intended for everyday consumption. They're mm -hmm. intended for resets, travel, jet lag, what have you, you have a bad night. And you have this, a lot of people guzzling melatonin at these high dosages and you're building a tolerance and they're just on this hamster wheel that is concerning. So I'll stop there and pause. What's your take? Well, my take on melatonin in general is I think it has its place a hundred percent. I think it's very effective. I use it for people who are like night owl syndrome or they circadian issues, jet lag, anything where your body clock doesn't match up to what you want. So I have a lot of patients that can't fall asleep until three in the morning and they sleep until 11 if they could. So I use it, but we actually in the sleep field, we tend to use tiny doses. So half a milligram, one milligram, three, five, like you were saying, can be hefty. I see all the time, I see patients who are taking 20 and 30 milligrams of melatonin and they just think more is better. I don't know. And, and, and I got to tell you, there are physicians who are saying just take more and there's no data behind any of that sort of stuff. And I think like you were saying, you're going to wake up there, just because it's over the counter doesn't mean it's not without side effects. So people often feel very groggy. A lot of people get headaches. They feel dizzy. They feel nauseous from it. And it also can cause vivid dreams and nightmares. So I encourage people, if they're coming to me on higher doses, I would rather just work on setting the wake time, trying to give them a more routine sleep schedule. And then I slowly will work to wean off the melatonin, but you get caught on that cycle. Like you were saying that at some point you just have to break it. And the only way you can really break it is if you're getting up at the same time and then you're following some of the CBT for insomnia strategies that I talk about. So you see people around the world. Now we were talking about before the show with telemedicine. And I think for many people, you're a last resort, you know, they've tried everything, mm -hmm. whether it's supplements, medication, doctors, what have you, and then they find you. And there's a lot of bad advice out there. What's like the craziest thing? What are you seeing? Like, what's the craziest thing you've seen recently? We're like, oh my God, I can't believe someone told this to you. The usages of, I mean, like I said, I think the supplements have a place, 
But I think it's not even crazy-ish stuff. What I'm seeing a lot now is at the beginning of the pandemic, people were understandably freaking out, myself included. We don't know what was going on. So people weren't sleeping well. And a lot of people were getting prescriptions for these sleep, I mean, sleep aids, but combinations of pharmaceutical medications, codeine, cough syrup, all this sort of stuff because nothing was working. So they were just on these high dosages of all this stuff because people thought the world was ending, understandably. But now a year plus later, the, a lot of the physicians like, you can't be on these things anymore. So a lot of people are just like, they don't know what to do to get off of them. So that's when you said like last resort, people are coming because now they're on these like huge doses. So we're working with physicians and psychiatrists to try and get people off of this medication. But I do hear a lot of like, take extra supplements or just, I hear a lot of like, well, rest in bed is the same. So just lay there for a long time. And if you're watching TV, it'll be the same as your sleep. And the reality is that couldn't be further from the truth. A lot of people aren't sleeping as we've discussed. Yeah. And, and the upside of that is I think there's more focus than ever on sleep. I think everyone understands the role sleep plays in our overall health and well-being and how it's so critical. And you have, yeah. you know, all these trackers and you've got even, I'm not a fan of the Kardashians, but you've got Kim Kardashian sharing her aura scare, score. It's quite high. Uh, you know, I think we're all <laughs> jealous. You know, I don't get the phenomenon with them, but it's a thing. Mm -hmm. So with regards to, to, to sleep, I think there's a lot of science. There's a, there's a lot of focus. I'm curious in terms of developing science or studies that are recent or you'd like to happen if there aren't any, like what do you think is interesting with regards to sleep and what we're learning about sleep and what does the science say? I think for me, because I'm just so focused on insomnia and that's like my main area, I would love more kind of focused studies on what is the right course of treatment for people? So for some people, behavioral treatments are what they need. For other people, it's, you know, some people for women, it could be they need behavioral treatments. Other women might need, they might need to talk with their gynecologist about hormone um, treatments. It varies or medication or supplements or whatever it might be. I wish we had more focused treatments so that people aren't just trying sleep hygiene and then just like they didn't do anything. So that for me is like a really exciting area. And I think also just getting for area of research too, I see insomnia and sleep apnea all the time together. So I think getting people to um, really understand how apnea really influences insomnia a lot of times, because sometimes when we're talking about awakenings in the middle of night, sometimes people awaken because they can't breathe and they don't realize it. So I think if we can get more research onto where do they go first? Who, who do they see? How do we target there to get their sleep better from a sleep disorder specialist? That's kind of where I would love to see more. Well, you mentioned sleep apnea and not being able to breathe. Mm -hmm. We've had James Nestor, the author oh, yeah. of Breath, on this podcast. And the inspiration for that book, we love the book, was his sleep apnea. And he went down the rabbit hole of, of breath and the power of nostril breathing and mm -hmm. how nostril breathing alone had such a huge impact. Yeah. And I think and it's so, it's so important. And I think we get so focused in, in the world of sleep disorders. It's just, I think, treatments in general for a lot of disorders that you have to do this first and this. And it, some people, they end up suffering for a year or two or more before they get to what works for them. That I wish we had more targeted therapies to know where someone might respond best. And yeah, his book was fantastic. And, and I hope more people start to use that sort of stuff too. And I've played around. I, I got the mouth tape which mm -hmm. you put on. I'm a nostril, I'm pretty much a nostril breather, but I wanted to experiment with it. And it's fascinating. Yep. It really is. It, and, and it definitely helps. I noticed that my respiratory rate 
would go down when I wore my mouth tape. And what we're learning about respiratory rate is that there's a, there's a strong correlation with longevity and our overall health and well-being. If you're really going to focus on a metric, that's, that's one of them. Exactly. Exactly. And I think, you know, I think the other thing too, is like, you're talking about something as simple as mouth tape, right? It's, I think a lot of people don't want to even get diagnosed with sleep issues. They're afraid they're going to have to sleep in a sleep center and have all these wires on them. And then they're going to have to be attached to a pap machine or whatever. There are so many amazing treatments out there that I hope that we start to really advance that even more and get the word out like you're doing. So what you're hitting on too is anxiety out there, you know, whether it was COVID anxiety or anxiety around, I got to do this crazy sleep treatment with wires around me. and, And there's so much anxiety and you had this great post on your Instagram on Ted Lasso. You know, everyone loves Ted Lasso, <laughs> Ted Lasso. And it was, it was last, it was the first season, but he had a panic attack. And you shared that it's actually more common than we know. Yeah. And you also have some tips. So if we talk about panic attacks and how common they actually are, and if we think we're having a panic attack, what we could do. Well, I think, you know, the panic attacks are, they're much more common. And that was the one thing like Ted Lasso kind of made it, in my opinion, feel kind of was still like this thing that people didn't have. About 50% of the population has had a panic attack here and there. It becomes problematic when you start to avoid doing things or you're kind of rearranging your life around trying not to have a panic attack. But to know the way that in the CBT field, cognitive therapy field, we think of panic attacks almost like your hardwiring is having a false signal. It's a false alarm that's going off. So you're thinking that there's some sort of anxiety in front of you and you're having a panic attack, a response to saying fight or flight is essentially happening. So even though there might not be something that you actually have to fight or run away from, your body is having that response. So what I usually, it, the thing that I find helps the most, and I put like, a, I think I had a um, reel or something on there. It's just grounding exercises. So it can be simple, something sim- as simple as just naming three things you see, naming three things that you can touch in front of you, naming three things that you can smell or taste in the moment. If you can just find three things that you can see, name three colors, just three, three, three of certain groups that can actually just ground you in the moment and help it to pass a little bit more. There's so many different ways to deal with panic attacks, but if you don't see it as a horrible thing is happening, you can start to reframe it a little bit. That's very helpful. And then from the, con- the concept or the idea of sleep disorders, a lot of people who have daytime panic attacks can have nighttime panic attacks. So some people wake up in the middle of the night and they're, they're, they're usually more of the nocturnal panic attacks tend to feel more like choking sensations more around the neck, but the same sort of strategies can be used. And then we also just try to always rule out any sleep apnea, anything else that might be going on that could worsen those nocturnal panic attacks. But those are common too. People never really talk about them. No, I, I think they're becoming more prevalent. I think you know, there are a lot of people who are quite anxious right now. And there's a lot of anxiety yeah. and, and, yeah. and we get it. Of course, there's a lot to be anxious about. So much. So coming back to, to sleep, what can we learn from our sleeping positions? Yeah. So I'm not one who really is like, do you mean like personality kind of wise or any of that sort of stuff? I get asked that all the time. I, I know. I'll give you free. You could take it any direction you choose. <laughs> Personalities, sleep health, or, or are we just overthinking it? I think sometimes we overthink it, honestly. I think, you know, it's like I get asked all the time, like, what's the best mattress that you have to sleep on? What's the best pillow? There isn't one. That's the rule. Like, it's whatever is comfortable for you. So there are some people who say, like, if you sleep on your stomach, it's not good for your back. It's bad for your neck. 
If you sleep on your back, some, sometimes that's the ideal position. But if you're someone who snores and you're having apnea, sometimes the treatment without having to use machines or any breathing issues is just sleep on your side. So it's really, it's very personal to how you tend to sleep. I actually sleep on my stomach, which some people are shocked by. But it's really however you're most comfortable. If you can feel well rested and fresh, you're not having any breathing issues and you don't have any pain issues, then more power to you, in my opinion. It reminds me of a saying I once heard with regards to exercise, you know, when asked what the best exercise is, the best exercise is the one you actually do. The best sleeping position is the one you actually sleep in. Exactly. And you know, it's funny. It's like when I was pregnant, I had two kids. They, I remember my OB kept saying to me, don't sleep on your back. Don't sleep on your back because it's too much pressure. All these sort of I sleep on my side and start on my side. I used a pillow, a body pillow, but I'm such a stomach sleeper that I never could do that when I was really pregnant. But I would always in the middle of the night roll onto my back because that's just what happened. And I would freak out over it. And then I would just say, I rolled onto my back. Let go. Go back to your side. If you just let it go, it's a lot easier. So in closing, if you have one piece of advice for our listeners, anything they can do to help make their sleep a little better, you know, 5%, 10%, whatever it might be. What's one thing we should all consider? I, the thing that I love the most, which is really hard for a lot of people, but if you can do it, is try to just get up at the same time every day, seven days a week, the wake time and get light exposure when you get up in the morning. If you can do that, it will help hopefully set the bedtime a little bit easier. It will help set your ability to stay asleep a little bit more. But really, the morning is the thing that you need to start focusing on to help with the night. Got it. We can do it. Shelby, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.